All right. A um, <clears throat> couple of things that you should have gotten with a handout um, is you should have gotten a little map that looks like this, just a little half sheet. Um, and you'll notice on that map the, the triangles are the seven churches. So what you're looking at um, in that day and age would have been Asia. It's, it's modern-day Turkey. And you'll notice there that all the little triangles, um, the seven churches, the seven cities, the churches in those cities are represented by those little triangles. Um, and then Patmos is kind of right off the coast there, um, just kind of there on the southwest side. You can kind of see that. Um, and you'd be surprised that when you start looking up maps for where these seven churches were and these cities were, there, there's some change, like some that are just a little bit different, a little bit off. And so like on this map, um, Sardis or Sardis is in between Smyrna and Philadelphia. And a lot of maps have it in between Thyatira and Philadelphia. It's probably supposed to be a little closer to Thyatira and Philadelphia, um, if you kind of see that. But anyways, it's kind of a perfect route. And the way that they're addressed in the text is it basically starts at Ephesus and then works itself up north and then comes back around, finishing at Laodicea. Um, so it's kind of this perfect little route that if somebody were to deliver this, um, these letters to these churches, they could just have this perfect kind of route going clockwise. Um, and Ephesus would have been the first one that they would have come to from Patmos. If they're, like if John was traveling from Patmos, he would have come to Ephesus first. Um, again, we're going try to <laughs> try to cover um, all seven here tonight. Um, and these letters to these churches um, are specific letters addressed to these specific churches and um, that they're they're not they're kind of like a letter but they're more like a message they're almost like a sermon in a way Um, and again in the immediate context these are seven real churches in John's day and age that he is addressing and as you look at it though you kind of think man it's really a message that hits home um, with almost every church of every generation. Now, you, you'll come across certain teachers or pastors who will say, hey, each church represents kind of an era in church history. Um, whether that's true or not, the text just does not like, say, and, it, and, and you could almost argue it doesn't really lend itself to that, but some people take it that way for different reasons. Um, either way, um, even if they do, they could still speak to almost every generation of believers. And what we have to do is kind of as we walk through these is ask ourselves, man, is that, is that, is that me? Like, is that us? In that, and if it is, then what, what do we do about it? And, and, of course, we'll kind of break all that down. Um, but there's a common formula that's going to actually, I think, in a way, help us to um, kind of capture the overall message that I think Jesus is presenting to us. Um, and, I, and it's really this seven-fold formula that you see in every uh, message or every letter. And I've got the formula written out there on your sheet. Um, but every letter, every letter addressed to each individual church has this same formula. Um, the content's different in, in some cases, but it has this same formula. So the first one is the recipient's. Um, 
So in other words, who is the letter or the message addressed to? So in, in that way, it's like a letter. Uh, that's why people call these the letters to the churches. Um, so it does have a recipient. So like in the first one we'll see is the, the church in Ephesus. Um, they're the recipients, the believers in Ephesus. Um, and that's crucial because as we'll look tonight, a little bit of summary about these individual cities um, it does matter their cultural context, um, because sometimes you'll see, like in Laodicea, for example, there's a, you know, it's the famous, I wish you were hot or cold, you know, because you're lukewarm, I just want to spit you out of my mouth. Um, there's kind of, we'll look at it, but in Laodicea, there's kind of an aqueduct that was tended to be kind of lukewarm, you know, and, and there is, it, there's the visual there, as I'm saying, that, that kind of hit home with that church, they could easily be like, oh yeah, that's, I get what he's saying. Um, so you have the recipient, then you also have the sender. So again, um, the recipient is the church, so that changes with each letter, but the sender is always the same. Uh, it's Jesus. Now you'll remember last week, we looked in chapter one, that big, kind of vision that Jesus gets of Jesus in his glory and in his perfection and power and honor and authority and all that, um, right, you, you, with his eyes and his face and his feet and, you know, the, the double-edged sword coming out of his mouth, right, this visual that we saw last week. Um, what's cool about the different churches is we, we basically, part of that image is drawn um, from each, basically each time a church is addressed, a characteristic from that vision is used to basically say that this message that is going to these churches is not just from anybody, it's from Jesus, like it's from Jesus the Christ, the, the one who is the powerful one, the, the Messiah, the, you know, the one who has all authority and, and so on and so forth. Um, so the sender is the same. But this is what's interesting, as we'll look at with the um, kind of the promise later, and it talks about basically to those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Like, well, I thought it was from Jesus, you know, because he's the sender, but then it says, let them hear what the Spirit has to say. But again, you see the Trinity at work and all of that, um, and we'll look a little bit later on at that. So, so you have the sender, and it's always Jesus, but... The way it's described is using connections going back to that image that John saw in Revelation chapter 1. And then the third thing you see is knowledge. So in other words, Jesus says, I know dot, dot, dot. I know about your works. I know where you live. I know about your works. I know about your tribulation. Like, so in every formula, you have the recipient, then you have the sender, and then you have the sender's knowledge. He knows about them. He knows what's going on with them. He knows their situation, and so on. So you have knowledge. And then number four, you have verdict. The verdict is, what does Jesus find good about this church, or what does he find not so good or bad about this church. Um, and some of them will have nothing mentioned about what they're not doing good, whereas others of them will have um, nothing good 
about them, right? Like the Laodicea, they don't have a, hey, you're doing this really well, but they don't get that. Um, And so you'll see that a little bit as well. But most of them have some things they do well, but then some things they're not doing well. Which leads then to, after the verdict, the command. The command is, okay, this is your verdict, now here's what you need to do, or here's what you need to not do, or something like that. Um, So in other words, repent, or I'm taking, you know, your lampstand away, or something like that, right? So repent, or remember, or do something like that. So then you have the command, and then you have, number six, the result. So the command is, for example, repent. The result is, what happens if I don't repent? Or what happens if, you know, I don't obey the command? Then, then what does that lead to? So the result, and then again, every church has this promise. And the promise is very, almost word for word the same. And the promise, in essence, is to the one who conquers, to the one who is the overcomer, to the one who is the victor, um, who has victory, then, you know, they'll get to eat of the tree of, of life in, the, in you know, the Garden of Paradise or something like that. So the, the promise is to those who conquer, to those who have victory, then they get something really nice. Um, they get the crown of life, or again, they get to partake of the tree of life. And the promise is really, you see, ultimately kind of come to fruition at the end of the book of Revelation, when you see the new creation and everything, but it also ties imagery back to the Garden of Eden, what was lost, you right? And, and it takes your, your, like the tree of life, for example, and that takes your memory all the way back to Genesis, the book of beginnings in the Garden of Eden. So this sevenfold formula, these seven things are in every letter. Again, the content changes based on the letter, but the, the formula is there, and John pulls from, when he's the sender, he's, he's describing what he's already seen in Revelation 1, which is that sevenfold vision of Jesus and all his splendor and glory and power, and he's saying these letters are coming from him. Not just any source, not just any person out there, it's coming from Jesus himself. Um, so let's look at these seven churches um, so let's look at church, I'm, I'm going to kind of call these profiles, if you will. Um, let's look at Ephesus on your sheet. I give you a little bit of room to take notes. Um, that's probably not going to be enough, but you can do your notes how you want to on this. Um, so church one profile, and as I walk through these, I'm going to answer each one of these. We're, we're going to look at each one of them. So I'm going to give you a summary of the city and I've just pulled that summary from a commentary I really like. It's the Expositor's Bible Commentary. Um, so all the summaries, I'm just pulling from that commentary. Um, and then we'll look at what does the formula look like for that particular church. So church one profile is um, Ephesus. So the recipient is Ephesus. You can see this chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. So you can notice on your map, again, that Ephesus It's kind of that first one, if you're leaving Patmos, that you would come to. Um, So, religiously speaking, Ephesus was the center for the worship of this fertility, 
bee goddess known in Greek as Artemis, right? Some of you have heard that name, Artemis. Or in Roman um, language, it would have been Diana. Um, and so the temple, with its statue of Artemis in Ephesus, was one of the wonders, the great wonders of the ancient world. Um, this was like uh, Jerry's world, right? We, we got one of the great wonders here in, in North America, right? Jerry's world is Cowboy Stadium down in Dallas, if you've ever seen it. Um, Everybody knows about it. Everybody, you know, maybe you've seen a picture about it or you drive by and you're like, oh my goodness, that's where that is. If you were in Ephesus, you knew where this temple was. Um, you knew um, who Artemis was. And there were thousands, thousands of priests and priestesses that were involved in the service of Artemis. Um, and so it, it was crazy, but these Many of the priestesses were dedicated to what is known as cult prostitution. Almost all of these temples and emperor cults and so on and so forth carried with it some form of sexual immorality that was promoted, embraced, celebrated. Um, yeah, it just, it just came with it. Um, and the temple also served as a great bank for kings and merchants um, as well as an asylum for fleeing criminals. Um, so one of Ephesus's own citizens, known as the weeping philosopher Heraclitus, said that the inhabitants of the city of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned, and that the reason why he could never laugh or smile, always weeping, was because he lived amidst such terrible uncleanness. Uh, the point is there that in Ephesus, they were morally bankrupt, what we would consider morally bankrupt. In other words, what was celebrated, promoted, and the lifestyle in public in Ephesus would make you and I blush significantly. You say, well, yeah, but our culture has done this, that, it would make you blush and want to hide in a cave for a very long time. Um, so very just morally corrupt and so on. And the church at Ephesus, kind of going back to like Acts 18 and 19, the church at Ephesus was um, founded by Aquila, Priscilla, and then um, Paul. But um, this city, the, the church, very cosmopolitan, very transient, constantly going. Um, their city had a history of cultural, political change, and so on. Um, but this is kind of just a little bit about the city of Ephesus. So who is the letter of Ephesus from? It is from, as you see there in these verses, it's from the one who holds the seven stars and the one who walks among the seven lampstands. So again, that's language we've seen already in chapter one, and we're told that the mystery of the, the stars, these seven stars, are the angels. And we kind of looked at that last week. It could literally be messengers, like angelic messengers. It could be like the kind of the pastor's leaders over those churches, um, or it could have just been the believers themselves. There's debate there. Either way, it's, it's from the one who holds them in his hands and the one who walks among the, the seven lampstands, which, again, is imagery for the seven churches. Um, so this is who it's from. So what John is trying to get us to realize is that this letter is from Jesus, the same one that he's talking about in Revelation 1. It's from him. So knowledge, what does he know? 
What does he know? He says, I know, verse 2, I know your deeds. So this is the knowledge. I know your deeds, or I know your works. I know your actions. So that's the knowledge. There's nothing hidden from his sight. He knows their works. And so what is the verdict? Well, there's some good, and then there's some not good. So the good is, I know your toil, your, your labor. I know your patience. So you're a hardworking church. I know your patient perseverance. Um, I also know that you can't tolerate wicked people. Um, so in other words, you're, you're very strong about you know, pointing out um, people that later on, as we find out, you know, false teachers. Um, he says you test those who claim to be apostles, but they're not. You found them to be false. So you're diligent in pointing out false doctrine or false teaching. Um, you're diligent in trying to work really, really hard um, to be, you know, to, to obey or something like that, or to serve or to preach or whatever it might be. You don't tolerate wicked people. You test those who claim to be apostles and who aren't. Um, you persevered. You, you've endured hardships for my name, he says. You haven't grown weary. So again, the church in Ephesus is a very strong church, very um, doctrinally sound church. Um, they know the scriptures. They know what's truth and what's not. Okay, so that's kind of the good verdict. You got some good things going for you, but what's the not good verdict? Um, this is what he says he holds against them, verse 4. You have forsaken or you have abandoned the love you had at first. So I, I don't know why, but I picture kind of a, you know, a couple that's been married for, for decades, for years. And they, they do things, they live in the same house, you know, they, they go places together, they, they travel together, they do all these things together, but they have a cold relationship. You know, they don't speak to each other like they used to. That they, they've lost that love that they had at first. This, in essence, is what Jesus is saying. He's like, man, you do all these things, but where's your love for me? You've lost that love that you had for me. All right, and so the verdict is, hey, you, you're a hard worker. You, you know doctrine. You, you, you're, you show up at church all the time. You, you know, you're there every time the doors are open. You, you've, you, know, you can give all the right answers. You can spot a false teacher a mile away, right? You just sniff them out. But you've lost your love for me. You lost your love for me. All right, so that's the verdict. So what is the command then? The command is, you can kind of remember this with three R's. Remember, repent, and repeat. Remember, repent, and repeat. So he says, verse 5, consider. Um, really, it's a word that means to remember. To remember, to consider how far you have fallen. So in other words, remember where our relationship was at the beginning. Now compare that to now. So remember, consider, and then repent. Do the things you did at first. Again, it's like a, a husband telling his wife or a wife telling um, her husband, like, man, I wish you would just love me like you did at the beginning. I wish you would just love me like that. And that's, in essence, what Jesus is saying. Um, not that these other things, like, he's, he's glad that they're doing these other things, but he really wants their love for them. So remember and then repent. Um, 
and, and then do the things you did at first. And so in other words, repeat. So repeat what you were doing at the beginning. You don't bring me flowers anymore. You know, you don't, you don't do those kind of things anymore. Um, anyways, Valentine's Day is coming up, guys. All right, just remember that, okay? Um, all right, we'll move on. Um, so that is, the command is, remember these things. Remember where you fall and repent. Repeat what you did at the beginning. So what is the result? What is the, so that's the verdict. We got the command. What is the result if they don't repent? Um, he says this in verse 5. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Now, some people debate, okay, see, he's going to, you know, this, I don't, to, to me, this is not a salvation thing. What, what Jesus is more talking about, kind of remember the Beatitudes where he says, man, you're the city on a hill. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light in the darkness. But then he says, what good is it if the salt loses its saltiness? It's just meant to be thrown out. In other words, it's lost its effectiveness. Um, again, when a church loses their love for Jesus, and it just becomes about all these other things, then it's like, what, you know, what, what good is that? It, it first starts with the love for Jesus, right? If we love him, he says, then we'll obey him, right? But, man, we've got to love him, um, and so it says, if you don't, you, you know, your effectiveness, all that kind of stuff, and quite literally, I will remove you from your place. Um, so that's the, that's the result. And then he goes on, uh, and he says in verse 6, you, you have this also in your favor. This is also part of the verdict. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Again, we'll look at the Nicolaitans here in just a moment and who they are. Um, but again, they hate false doctrine. They hate false teachers. They hate those that are promoting just promiscuity and just lifestyles that clearly run in contradiction um, to who Jesus is and what he wants for us. Um, so externally, they have it all there. It's just they've lost their love for him, and Jesus deeply wants them to love him. And so then verse 7, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Remember that statement because it said everyone. Every, again, this is like a formula here. And every single church gets that same statement. And it's, state, it's a statement that should conjure up in your mind when Jesus starts talking about in parables, right? Those who have ears to hear, let them hear. It's language Jesus used all the time. Um, and again, too, this is a, a message from Jesus, but he's talking about what the Spirit has to say. Um, so again... The, the Spirit and Jesus are working together here. Um, and so, but just remember that statement. And then, this is the promise. To the one who is victorious, your translation might say, to the one who conquers. But to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And again, that's similar language to what John used in John 1. To those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God, born not of the flesh, but born of the Spirit. All right, so that's kind of our church one profile with Ephesus. Um, and again, ask yourself, man, is that, is that where I'm at? Because again, I think what Jesus is trying to get us to, to allow these words to sink into us and say, man, am I... 
I'm good about this, I'm good about this, I'm good about this, but have I lost my love for Jesus? Right? You remember like in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says, many people are going to tell me, say to me on that day, well, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Didn't we do many wonderful works in your name? And Jesus says, well, then I'm going to confess unto them, I never knew you. You might have known a lot about me. You might have done a lot of things for me. But did you, did you know me? Did you know me? It's kind of like I could know a lot of things about Stephanie, where she was born, where she was raised, things she's, her strengths, her weaknesses, her experiences. Um, I could tell you a lot about her. Um, I could say, hey, I, you know, I built a house for her, or I, I, you know, traveled miles for her, or something like that. But then let's say I told you I hadn't talked to her in 10 years. Well, do I really know her? Do I really, do I really love her? And so that's kind of the the question we have to ask ourselves, do I, do I truly love Jesus? Because that's what God wants. He wants our hearts. He wants our souls. He wants our minds. Um, the sacrifices, yeah, but what he, all throughout Scripture, what he really wants is our hearts. Do we love him? All right, so that took us 15 minutes. We're at least going to get through two, two or three churches. Um, so the church in Smyrna, church profile number two. Church profile number two. So, who are the recipients? Smyrna. Smyrna. Um, Smyrna, as you can see on your map, was north of Ephesus, about 40 miles. So, not a whole, whole lot there, but just about 40 miles north. The city was beautiful. It was large. It ranked with Ephesus and Pergamum as the first of Asia. Big, important cities for Rome and just their connection with the Eastern world. Um, Smyrna is known as the birthplace of Homer, right? You've heard of like Homer's Iliad or all that kind of stuff, right? It was the birthplace of Homer. Um, it was a very important seaport city, very important seaport city. Um, it was a wealthy city where learning, especially in the sciences and medicine, it, it flourished. Very well-educated community, uh, very wealthy community. Um, it repeatedly sided with Rome in different periods of her history, and so it earned special privileges in the eyes of Rome as a free city. It was self-governed. So in other words, they said, hey, you've, you've sided with us a lot, so we'll kind of you know, let your leash be a little longer than maybe some other cities. Um, among the beautiful paved streets in the city of Smyrna was the Golden Street, what it's known as. Um, it ran from east to west, and the reason it was called the Golden Street is because of all of its brilliant temples along this street. Um, so think of like the Strip in Las Vegas. People are going to be thinking about Las Vegas a lot here in the next couple of weeks because of the Super Bowl and so on. You know, people might think of the Strip. Oh, that's where all the brilliant hotels and casinos are and all the, the art and the culture is just really along that Strip. That's what the Golden Street was in Smyrna with all their temples. Like, man, this is the place you want to be. This is where all the happenings are. This is where all the cool people hang out. Um, so this is what the Golden Street was. Smyrna was the center, a center at least, of emperor worship. Um... So again, it, it won the privilege from the Roman Senate in A.D. 23 of building the first temple in honor of Tiberius. And under Domitian, 
which remember was the emperor in 81 to 96 AD, um, under Domitian, emperor worship became an obligation for every Roman citizen. Um, and if you didn't um, basically profess them as deity, then you might die. I mean, it was that, that significant. So I mean, imagine in our culture, somebody said, it's not just that you vote for this person, but you actually have to say that they are gods. Um, remember what the religious people in Jesus' day said when they were wanting to crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. It already had begun, this emperor worship, but now during like the days of Domitian, it became obligatory, like by compulsion, you had to or else you might die, which plays a, a, a part in the address to this church. Um, so once each year, a citizen had to burn incense on the altar to the godhead of the great Caesar, after which that person would be issued a certificate. So imagine every year before you got your tax return, you had to check a box that said, the president is king and lord and God. Uh, and then by doing that, you get your little receipt that says, hey, they did that. And if you didn't, well, then the IRS might come after you. And if you still refuse, they might put you in prison, which in Roman prison was not to go face your trials, most likely to go face your death. And so it was a big deal. Um, and it was a huge deal. And you might say, well, why, you know, religious-wise, it was more about political loyalty. Rome wanted to know that you were loyal to them, above and before anyone or anything else. Um, that's what they wanted you to do and wanted you to know. Um, so you had to say, Caesar is Lord, kurios, which is the Greek word for Lord. Um, yet most Christians refuse to do this. We have only one Lord, and that is Jesus. Kill me, I don't care. I'll go be with the Lord and live happily ever after. What are you going to do to me? Um, so Polycarp uh, was a famous Christian. Um, you might have heard that name before. Um, but this is just an example of how bad it got. But in 156 AD, um, he basically, he was 86 years old, refused to give, you know, allegiance to the emperor. Um, and so he was in Smyrna, supposedly the 12th martyr in Smyrna. And this is what his words were. 86 years have I served Christ. He has never done me wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? So it's kind of like the stoning of Stephen, remember, like even to his death. You know, he's being stoned to death, evil, wickedness all around him, and yet he's looking upon his lords and saying, that's, that's where I'm going. So um, there was a large, hostile Jewish community at Smyrna um, and that was just against Christianity and basically saying Jesus is the Messiah. And so the Christians in John's day were in a predicament. Do we worship the emperor or do we worship Jesus or do we compromise? Um, one commentator brought up kind of as a comparison, like what this would be like. Um, a modern day comparison was the Christians who were um, a part of the Jack Japanese occupation of Korea in 1937 to 1940. Some of you might know about this, um, but in Korea, because of the Japanese occupation during those years, South Korea, Christians were ordered to worship at the Shinto shrines, and many of them refused and were imprisoned and tortured as a result. And so even just in the last 100 years, we've seen Christians 
and other cultures basically imprisoned, tortured, killed because they refused to bow down to anyone or anything else besides Jesus. Um, as far as the founding of this church in Smyrna, we don't really know. All we have about this church is what's right here in Revelation chapter 2. All right, so that's a little bit about this city, Smyrna. Um, so it's two. That's the recipient. Who is it from? Um, well, we find out in verse 8 that these are the words of him who is the first and the last who died and came back to life again. So again, John used this language in Revelation 1, and he's basically saying this is from Jesus. This is that one. Right, the one who conquered sin and death and resurrection, the one who is the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. And what is his knowledge? What is his knowledge? Verse 9, I know your tribulation, or I know your afflictions. I know your poverty. I, I, I know how little you have. But what's amazing is, he says, yet I also know you're rich. In the eyes of the world, you're poor. You have nothing. But in the eyes of me, you are beyond wealthy. So I know your poverty. I know your tribulation. I know your afflictions. Um, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but actually are a synagogue of Satan. Now, there's debate on who those Jews were. Were they um, just Jews who denied that Jesus was the Messiah, and so they're just unbelieving Jews? Um, were they, you know, some Jews that are basically saying, you know, because there were some that they went so far to say, in essence, these Christians aren't giving allegiance to Caesar, and so they wanted to kind of pin them and get them in trouble, in essence, uh, almost like to rat them out. So there, there's debate on who these Jews were and what they were about and what they were trying to do. But either way, what Jesus is saying is, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, and I know the slander that you're facing from those who think they actually belong to me, but they really don't. And this should remind you, too, in John's gospel, where you remember the religious people, specifically the leaders, were like, hey, you know, Abraham's our father, Abraham's our father. And Jesus is like, no, he's not. Satan's your father. Because if, if, you know, if Abraham was your father, you'd be doing the works of Abraham. In other words, you'd be of the faith of Abraham. So he literally calls these Jewish leaders um, sons of the devil. This is why they call Jesus a Samaritan. Uh, they call him a Samaritan devil and just wanted to attack him and kill him. Multiple times they tried to kill him before they actually were successful on the cross. But... Um, but Jesus says, no, 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 Satan, or Satan is your father. And so Jesus basically says, I know what slander you're getting from people who think they belong to me, but they actually don't. In the same way that I remember Paul, Saul, who was persecuting the church, thought he was doing the will of God, but actually was attacking Jesus. It's that kind of situation. So this is what Jesus knows. I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, I know your slander. So now what is the verdict? What is the verdict? Um, the verdict is um, you're rich despite your poverty, despite your tribulation, despite your opposition, despite your persecution, despite the testing, you are 
wealthy, you are rich, you have everything you need. It's kind of like what Jesus says, those who lose their life for my sake will actually save it or find it. It's, the, it's that kind of moment. The world says, well, you've lost, you, you have nothing. But Jesus is like, you have everything, actually. Um, and so that's what they have good. They have, they're rich. What are they, what's the verdict? The not so good. Well, they don't have a not so good. They're a faithful community of believers. And what Jesus gets to is this command. Um, he gets to the command. So the verdict is, hey, you're rich. You have all these things going against you. You have poverty and tribulation and opposition and all sorts of things that are happening to you and about to happen to you. But you're rich. You, you, you have eternal life. You have me. You have everything. So you're rich. And so the command is, in essence, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Be faithful, even to the point of death. Be faithful. So the command is don't fear. Be faithful unto death. So, again, like, not even 100 years later, you have Polycarp in Smyrna, 86 years old, and the government's about to say, we're taking your life unless you confess Caesar as Lord. And he's like, no, I'm not going to be afraid. And I'm going to be faithful to my king, even unto death. And so that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, hey, listen, don't be afraid. Be faithful. Even though you're about to suffer, he says in verse 10, you're about to suffer. The devil is going to put some of you in prison to test you. And you will suffer persecution for 10 days. But be faithful. Even should you die, be faithful. Right, so that's the command, and uh, what's the result? Uh, what's the result of obeying that command? I will give you life, the crown of life, or the victor's crown. So again, on the, the world's looking at this saying, you have no, you know, you have no friends, you're, you're by yourself in essence, you have nothing, you're not, you're not rich, you, you, you know, you're not part of the culture, that kind of stuff. And as a result, they're facing tribulation, they're facing persecution. On the, externally, it looks like they've lost everything, they have nothing. But Jesus said, no, 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 you're, you're rich, you have everything, you have life. You will, you will save your life. Even though you die, yet shall you live. And so if you just remain faithful to me, even unto death, man, what awaits you is actually the crown of victory. And this is the same thing with Jesus on the cross. The world looks at that. Rome looks at that and says, we beat him. We beat the criminal. He's a, he's a fool. He's, he, I mean, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, even his own scripture says. But actually, he was faithful even unto death. And what happened, as Paul says in Philippians 2, God elevated him to what? The victor's position, right? Um, so Jesus is saying the same thing to them, right? The result is if you just be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. And so what's the promise? Again, verse 11, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then here's the promise. The one who's victorious or the one who conquers will not be hurt at all by the second death by the second death. Now we'll look, a lot, look 
later on in Revelation about what the second death is. Um, but basically, it's very similar to what Jesus told Mary and Martha. Those who believe in me, though they die, yet shall they live. Those who believe in me will never die. So in other words, death has no power over you anymore because you are in Christ. You have victory over death. You have conquered death, not because of your works, but because of his work on the cross and because of the resurrection, right? It is finished. This is why, G, this is why all throughout the New Testament, it's, in essence, says he, he has the keys over death itself, death and Hades, right? Remember going back to Revelation 1, he has the keys over these things, right? And so all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, right? And so if you're in Christ, this is why Paul says you're seated with him right now in the heavenlies, right? This is that kind of position. And so he says, those who remain faithful to me, loyal to me, that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. All right. Um, let's just begin this church profile number three, all right? Let's just begin church profile number three. Um, Pergamum. Pergamum. I don't have much to say on Pergamum. Um, but this is verses 12 through 17. 12 through 17. So again, just following your map, going on north here. Um, the city of Pergamum was more inland. It was more inland. And um, it lay about 65 miles north of Smyrna. And it was along kind of this fertile valley known as the Caicos River Valley. Um, and it held the official honor of being the regional capital of Roman Asia. Um, though this honor was also claimed by Ephesus and Smyrna as well. But this is a very important big city, again, in the eyes of Rome for that region, but also as a connection point to the Eastern world. Uh, it was also beautiful and wealthy. And Pergamum was home to a library of nearly 200,000 volumes. Um, it was second only to the Library of Alexandria. It was a massive library. Um, and also, like the other cities we're talking about, um, it had many temples, many, um, all the things that come with these temples and um, idolatry and the things that come with the idolatry and the emperor cults and, and the lifestyles that, that came from that. Um, so that's Pergamum. Right, this is the recipient of the church in Pergamum. Um, so who is it from? Who is it from? Um, verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. So again, that goes back to Revelation 1, that image. And that double-edged sword is coming out of the mouth of Jesus. So again, John is saying, this is who this is from. This is still from Jesus. And what is the knowledge? What is the knowledge? He says, verse 13, I know where you live. I know your culture. I know your community. I know that region. I know your situation. I know where you dwell. I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne. Where Satan has his throne. Um, and again, we'll look at that in just a moment but he says, I know where you live, this knowledge here. So that's the knowledge. What is the verdict? What is the good? So this is what he says is good. Um, you hold fast to my name. You remain true to my name. 
you don't deny my faith. Um, bless you. You don't deny my faith. You, you did not renounce your faith in me. Not even the days of Antip Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. So in other words, even though you're surrounded by this kind of persecution that actually brought death to those who remain loyal to me, you, you didn't renounce me. You, you still chose to stay true to my name. Okay, well then what do you have against me? Verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Um, so stop right there for a moment because... We've already heard about the Nicolaitans, and we hear about them again in verse 15. He says, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Balaam and Nicolaitan, in essence, these two words mean the master of the people, the master or the ruler of the people. So many people believe that the Balaamites, those who kind of followed Balaam and the Nicolaitans, it, it probably refers to about the same group. And so who are they? Well, again, in this letter, he brings up Satan twice. This is where Satan dwells. Satan is the father of lies, right? He comes to you, as Paul says, masquerading as what? An angel of light. Deception is his great tool, his great kind of avenue into getting into your life. And there's something there because he brings up Balak, so Balak, you'll remember, and you go back this week and read like Numbers 25, um, or in, in there in, later in Numbers. Um, but Balak uh, was the king of Moab, and he could not succeed in getting the prophet Balaam to curse Israel directly. Because Balaam was like, hey, I, this is God's people, I can't just curse them directly. I can't go at them through the front door. So what did Balaam do? He devised a plan whereby the daughters of the Moabites would seduce the Israelite men and lead them to sacrifice to their god Baal and worship him. So in other words, um, Balaam said, listen, Balak, I, I can't attack God's people directly, but I can deceive them. I can't go through the front door, but I can go through the back door. And I can get their young men to basically converge with these women so as to buy into their ideology, to buy into their lifestyle, to buy into and begin to celebrate what they are into and celebrate. Which, by the way, this is what Jezebel, who will be brought up later on, did with King Ahab. Did the exact same thing. Um, it's very deceptive, just pulling them this way. Um, so God's judgment fell on Israel because of the fornication and the idolatry that came with this. And so in other words, what one person said, what Balak was not able to accomplish directly, he did through Balaam's deception. So one commentator said, while the Ephesians recognized the Nicolaitan error, so remember going back to the letter to the Ephesians, they, they hated the Nicolaitans and what they stood for idolatry, deception, participating in things. But with Pergamum, and as we'll see later on with Thyatira, they were deceived by it. 
in the same way that Balaam was successful in bringing about deception. It was, as one person said, an unconscious subversion. What Satan could not accomplish at Smyrna or Pergamum through intimidation, suffering, and death from outside the church, he achieved from within the church. And if there's anything, I think, in our day and age that we better be on guard in, it's deception. In the day and age of artificial intelligence, in the day and age of technology, in the day and age of all sorts of algorithms that play into the hands of getting you to buy into something or to follow something or to give yourself over to something, this one right here just kind of gets my hair standing up. Because what Satan loves to do is not come at you directly. Remember what Peter said in quoting the Old Testament, he's like a lion that prowls around in the shadows. He wants a victim that doesn't recognize they're about to be a victim. He wants, to se- he wants to get into your life through deception in order to get you to buy into an ideology and a worldview and a lifestyle that in essence leads you well away from the Lord and well into a pit of misery and darkness and so on and so forth. Um, so this is, this is what's crazy with this is he's telling the church in Pergamum, you hold fast to my name, but then I look over here and you're like, man, just running after these false gods. As the psalmist says, those who do will just face more and more misery. And that's what's going on here. And they're buying into all sorts of things. Um, so in other words, what the Nicolaitans and, and, and the, those of the Balaamites are doing here in, in Pergamum, it's Satan at work. Satan at work to get them to buy into all sorts of idolatry and practices that come with that and just horrific things. So really quick, so that's the verdict. What is the command? The command, quite simply, is repent. Repent. Verse 16, repent, therefore. Okay, so that's the command. Just repent. Stop what you're doing. Turn around. Get out of there. Leave that street. Leave that everything that you're doing. Repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you. This is the result. If you don't, then I will come to you. And I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth, or against you with the sword of my mouth. So again, there's that sword analogy. But in essence, if you don't repent, then I'm going to fight against you. That, that again, is just a major, a major result. And so, again, verse 7, 17, really quick, going into the promise. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, to the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. Um, I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So in other words, I will give you, remember Jesus has already called himself in John's gospel, the bread from heaven. Jesus is the manna. And so in essence, what he's saying here is to the one who conquers, you get me and a new identity in me. <laughs> um, to the one who conquers, I, I will give you this, this living eternal bread. Um, I, I will give you a new name, a new identity to the one who conquers, to the one who is victorious. Um, 
So again, thus far in these three, these three churches, and we'll see it with the other four as well, it's a stepping back and saying, man, where am I at in one of these? Am I at one of these? Are we as a church in one of these? Is, as a believers in this culture, where do we fall on and what is, what's the verdict? Which means what is the command and what is the result of that command? But next week, hopefully next week, when we get through the other four, we'll look more at the promise because these promises have a lot of similarities to them. And your, that word conquer, that word victory, I'm going to leave you with this little nugget here because we'll look at it next week. But that word victory in the Greek is nikeo. Um, it comes from a noun called Nike. Um, some of you might have Nikes on right now. Um, where Nike gets its name goes all the way back to Greek mythology. And Nike, N-I-K-E, was this old Greek goddess in Greek mythology that literally represented victory in all things. And she became kind of like a, um, kind of a, a main driving force for those like Zeus um, and Artemis, these false gods that are prevalent in all these cities that we're talking about. And what's interesting about that is the culture in that day and age would say, man, victory belongs to Nike. I need to become kind of one with Nike and follow Nike and all that kind of stuff. This is how true victory is gained in this world. In the same way that our world, at least in the Western world, says, you know, you do you. You live yourself. You, you conquer. You become this. You get your own victory. All that kind of stuff. This is how victory is achieved. But what Jesus is saying through the messages of these seven churches is, you want true victory, turn to me, remain loyal to me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, come follow me, kind of language. To the one who hears, let them hear what I'm telling you is choose me, love me, follow me. As Jesus would say in John, abide in me, remain faithful to me unto death, no matter the cost, no matter the circumstances, Choose me over anything and everyone in this life. And by doing so, you may face, as we'll see later on next week, you may face tribulation, you may face trials of all kinds, you may face really terrible times, but you will have victory in the end. True Nike. And you will be the one who conquers and overcomes, and you will be the one who dwells happily ever after in a new creation as we see in the end of Revelation. So whatever you might face in this life, Choose Jesus. Choose Jesus. That's true victory. All right. Any other thoughts or questions that you might have before we close? Anything we mentioned here tonight? We covered three. We got four more to go. All right. So we'll do the same profile next week. But again, I encourage you this week to read through these and see how this sevenfold formula shows itself in every single one. But I'll be up here. If you've got questions after, let me close this in prayer. And then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you. We love you. And Father, I know that there are believers, even as we speak, around the world facing incredible, incredibly dark situations. And the pressures in our culture look a little different. But Lord, we have to be on guard every single day. And Lord, I pray that in all things, no matter the conditions, no matter the circumstances, no matter the cost, that we would remain loyal to you. That we would remain loyal to you, but also that we would love you with everything in us. 
So help us to choose Jesus over anything and everyone, no matter what. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, thank you all. You're dismissed.